got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 2, where we'll be talking about marriage today. Um, So say what you will about the book of Genesis, you can't claim this book is boring, amen? Uh, Yeah, I I hear it in the nerves there. Let let me tap onto those nerves right there and just set it up this way. I think what's fascinating about this topic is that um, as a culture, as a people, we tend to, I think, be um, both fascinated by it and fearful of it. Um, Here's what I mean by that. Over the past several years, there's been a lot of talk in our culture about marriage. And um, if you've been living under a rock, there's a lot of debate about what it is, who can get married, who can say, what should this look like. And, and here's the point I just want to make from all of that. It seems like if you're dialed into these conversations, there's universal agreement, Christian or not, amongst anybody, no matter your worldview, there is this sense that um, marriage is a beautiful thing. Um, There's something good and right about marriage that we as humans uh, long for. And, um, you know, it goes back further than the recent conversations. There's a reason that uh, so many movies and great stories end in a wedding. Um, There's something about us as humans made in the image of God that just intuitively know in our bones that there's something beautiful about marriage. Um, that all humans seem to be able to recognize. So uh, we're fascinated by it. At the same time, I would say, um, I think a lot of us are fearful of it. Um, Like, like here's what I know. I've preached on this topic enough times to know, before the nervous laugh even, I know um, that several of you walked in here, opened your bulletin, and thought, oh, I really should have gone to brunch today. Um, And and, and here's the thing, you're not alone. Like there's an entire generation that is putting off marriage, that's waiting longer to get married if they'll get married at all, and it's not for no reason. They have seen the havoc that marriage can wreak on people, on families, on a culture when marriage goes badly. And and, and so here's what I wanted to do. Um, Into this space of fascination and fear... Um, What we're going to do today is we're going to go back to uh, the very beginning, and we're going to look at the first wedding in the book of Genesis. And what this story is going to do for us, this story of the first wedding that God gives some commentary on, is um, this story is going to help us, I think, understand why we love weddings so much, why we are so fascinated by marriage. This story, it's going to put its finger on the beauty that is here and help us understand it in a deeper way. Um, This story is also, though, because it gives us God's commentary at the end on the event, uh, this story is going to give us God's good design for marriage, that if we would line ourselves up with how our creator designed this thing to work, we might experience the beauty of marriage without being so dang afraid of it. And and so that's where we're going this morning. Um, As we get in, let me also say this. I know that for those of you who are single... Um, you might not so much be fearful as you were just like, oh, really, another sermon on marriage. And, and, and I'd say a couple of things. Number one, I don't pick the topics. I just preach the book. If it keeps coming up, that's because God keeps bringing it up. So let me just absolve myself of some responsibility there. Um, but as your pastor, someone that loves you, let me also say this. that so much of what we're going to talk about in the text today. Um, It is going to talk about this deep need that humans have for connection with one another. And while we're going to particularly look at how God has designed marriage as a particular uh, place and space for that, um, there are going to be some things in this sermon um, that you can apply uh, to your life. And so my encouragement to you would be to uh, lean in this morning and see what the Lord has for you. 
particularly because, um, as Pastor Phil read at the top of the service, when you get to the New Testament, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is going to tell us these verses in Genesis are ultimately about Jesus and his love for us. And is there anybody here this morning that couldn't stand to hear more of Jesus and his love for us? All right, this is one of those times where it's good that you're not all like shouting out like, I could stand. I'm glad that we're all on the same page, and I'm pretty sure the amen was agreeing. Like, yeah, we need that too, right? All right, let's go then. Genesis chapter 2, and what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to uh, go back into the verses that we preached last week just to kind of set this whole thing up. So we're going to start in verse 18, but we're really going to camp out in verses 24 and 25. Um, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, we, we looked at this last week, but I want to say it again as we get in and talk about marriage today. There's something really profound in that narrative there. That we're six weeks into the book here. Uh, what we have seen so far in the book of Genesis is everything is either good or very good in God's creation. God makes the sky. He says, that is good. God makes the land. He says, that is good. He makes the animals. He says, that is good. He makes the dog and says, very good. Um, I'm kidding. That, that's actually reserved for the humans. But I appreciate the way that so many of you are engaging my family around the beauty of dogs, particularly my uh, lovely bride, Karen. So that's just a thank you to all of you. But everything in the text is good. And then you get to 2.18 here, and then we read that God sees something that's not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, in one sense, he's not alone, right? Like, he's talking to God. They are walking in relationship. Um, There's the animals there. Like, the dogs are there. Man's best friend is right there. And and, and yet, uh, uh, in, in another sense, he He is alone because um, while there is God who is above him and the animals that are beneath him to rule over them, there is no one who is his equal, his companion. And we said this last week, you can't image a God who exists as a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in isolation. And so God sees that it's not good. Adam, it takes him a little while longer to pick up on this because he is a man. And so he gets to work. He starts naming all of the animals. And at the end of this, I think he kind of finally picks up on it. Like, hey, they all seem to come in pairs. There are, they all have companions that are like them, but not me. And so God says to Adam, all right, buddy, you've had a long day. Take a nap. Just sit this one out. Adam goes down to sleep. And I think we should all notice this. It's when humans go to sleep that God does his best work. Um, 
God makes Eve. Adam wakes up from his nap and he sees this creature standing before him and he bursts out in a song. He says, whoa, man, like you are like me, but you are so not like me. Like, you have thumbs. I have been waiting. You don't know how long I've been waiting to see that. But you have, okay, that's not like me. And so finally, there is a companion that is fit for him. And, and so what do they do? Uh, what we read here in the verses we're zooming in on today, verses 24 and 25, is they come together as one flesh. Um, now, there is a physical reality to this. Um, surely there's a physical reality to this, but you got to remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, that humans are made up of two parts. We are dirt and divine breath. And so we have a body and outside of us, but then there's a, there's an inner part of us, a heart, mind, soul, strength, whatever words you want to use for it, this part of us that separates us from the animals. It gives us more than mere animal instinct, but makes us, um, image bearers of God, um, that, Uh, are unpredictable at times, can do beautiful things, but because of the will inherent in us can also do terrible things, but it's what makes us unique. And we humans are this, um, this union between dirt and divine breath. We are two parts. And this is why when the Bible will talk about sex, it's always more than just the rubbing together of bodies. It's never just a physical reality. According to the Bible, the whole human experience is this integrated thing where, yes, there's a physical component, but there's a deeply relational and spiritual component that comes with that. And so uh, when these verses talk about uh, being one flesh, yes, there is um, a physical reality to that, but there's also something deeply relational going on here. And Moses captures that relational piece, um, that integrated whole with the words in verse 25, that they were naked and they were unashamed. Now again, this is their wedding night, folks. So there is a physical aspect to that that I think we're meant to take away. But you can't divorce the two. It's not just that they were physically naked and unashamed and then they were totally like cut off from one another relationally. This is a whole package deal where they're naked and unashamed and that is both physical, spiritual, relational, and intimate. Here's the idea of what we're seeing in the first marriage. This is a picture of deep, deep intimacy. Um, where Adam looks at Eve, and he sees her as she is, and he embraces her as she is. And there's a a physical component to that. They do have children, not to ruin the story for you. Um, But there's a relational and a spiritual component to that. And, you know, we don't get the details till later, but, I mean, just use your imagination. If we are dirt and divine breath, like, I imagine it, you know, um, Adam embraces her, um, but then it continues on. That is, Eve gets to know all the unique things about Adam and what makes him tick. She continues to see him as he really is. He is naked, uh, uh, showing who he really is. As she gets to know the stuff about Adam that makes Adam who he is. Like, imagine how this might have gone. Like, Adam, tell me about naming the animals. Because I get dog, I get cat, I get even rabbit, but platypus? Like, Adam, what, t- tell me about what you were thinking there when you got to that one there. Um, and as Eve is getting to know Adam... She is learning what makes this man tick. Maybe he was hungry at that point. Uh, Maybe he was tired at that point. I don't know. Um, But his information is shared. Here's what I can tell you with complete certainty. 
There might have been laughter. There might have been like, gee golly, I wouldn't have thought of that way. Or like, you just needed me sooner. I have 17 other three-letter names that would have helped you out there. But here's what didn't happen. There was no rejection there. Whatever Eve learned about Adam, whatever Adam learned about Eve as they talked to one another, as they walked in relationship with one another, whatever it was, no matter how funny, crazy, or backwards it would seem, there was always an acceptance and uh, uh, drawing near and uh, really saying, I, I love you there. This is what's meant by the term naked and unashamed. Uh, it, is a, it is a holistic picture of uh, intimacy. Um, where um, two people can uh, fully know each other. That's the naked part. You're, you're fully seen. You're fully exposed. There's, no, um, there's nothing kind of blocking who you really are. Um, you are naked and you are unashamed. You are being embraced for who you are. Um, more modern words for this that we often use um, are words like being known and loved. The church where Karen and I met, we, we would talk about those terms often, known and loved. I like the text, so I'll go naked and unashamed. If, if you laugh at the word naked like a boy did at our wedding, then just go with known and loved today. But, but here's the picture. It is a picture of intimacy. And according to the opening pages of the Bible, that as a human, you and I are created for intimacy with one another. We are created to be um, known, seen for who we are, and then loved and embraced uh, for who we are. We're created to be naked and unashamed. And, and, and don't let that uh, take your mind any weird places. Um, because uh, uh, while this sermon is about marriage, uh, the Bible will go on to say um, that this can happen in other places. In fact, the Bible will go on to say that any healthy relationship has this knowing and loving peace. And so the church is meant to be a place uh, where we know and love one another. That's probably where you don't use the naked and unashamed. Don't go do anything weird in the lobby after this. Um, but the point is, um, in marriage, we get a particular relationship where that knowing and loving can happen um, in a way that is unique from every other relationship. Um, where it can happen with a, a depth that, because here's the thing, you and I, we're finite beings. We can only know so much of a person. We can only give so much of our person. And what we're seeing in the text is while we are wired for intimacy and this has wide application, we're going to particularly talk about marriage, a particular relationship that God has given to us is a good gift where we can experience that knowing and loving, that being naked and unashamed with a certain kind of depth where we can give our limited energy to one person over a lifetime and have the opportunity to explore the depths of intimacy that we could find nowhere else. This is why Moses says, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In that culture, father and mother was your most important relationship. And he's saying, no, there's something even more sacred and special and beautiful about marriage than your most important relationship. There's something unique here that God has given us. And, and, and I think this is why we're particularly fascinated by marriage. Um, because we live in a culture uh, that knows nothing of being naked and unashamed. We live in a culture um, where we're just, we're used to, if we are seen for who we are, if we really do have that vulnerable moment where we kind of expose ourselves and we are um, relationally and spiritually, hopefully though not physically speaking, naked, um, that we feel naked and ashamed. 
when, when we are seen for who we are, we have universally, I don't know your story, I, can, I know this for a fact because I've talked to enough humans. We have all had the experience of being seen for who we are, really are and rejected on that ground. We have all had the experience of being taught you're not good enough, you're not invested enough, you're not smart enough, you're not beautiful enough, you are not special enough. We've all had that experience. And so, um, gosh, what do we do? We respond to that by putting a polished version of ourselves forward. And again, I think this is largely a human experience, particularly in our culture that is so achievement-oriented and achievement-driven. And I think the place that you particularly see this is on social media, where... Um, you know, I've never seen the post online um, that is, uh, man, we're melting down. The kids are losing their mind, and I think I'm losing the mind, my mind with the kids. And here's a photo of us all screaming and just waiting for something to give. I've never seen that post on Facebook. We always put the polished version of ourselves, the selfie that took like 17 clicks, and we edited it, and we're like, bam, there we are. We're doing great. And we put, so we're no longer, maybe we're not ashamed anymore, but we're certainly no longer naked. We put up this polished version of us. We put this veneer out front of us that's not the real us. It is at best a photoshopped version of us. And we stick that out front, afraid that if people really saw who we are, we would be rejected. And so we stick this out front and say, here's how I am doing. And so we say, yeah, everyone's having a good time. Uh, And we project this picture of strength where we have our lives together. You know, we never put the, um, the moments of, man, I just exploded on my friend. Like, I just lost my mind over something simple that they just said. We, we don't post that on Facebook, but if we have a spiritual insight or something that we think is politically savvy and intelligent, we'll be quick to post that one out there. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't post those things. What I'm saying is when you only post the things that you think make you look strong and you look beautiful and you don't post maybe the darker side, you're no longer naked. You are now putting up a polished version of yourself where you're saying, I have my life together. I am happy. I'm not worried. God and I, we're doing awesome. How are you doing? Look at this selfie. Look at the coffee and Bible that I've got right here. Like this is my setup this morning. And, and here's what I would say about all of this. Um, I think this is why as a culture we all feel so lonely. Because uh, we have a thousand friends online, but nobody knows the real us. And we have friends at church. We maybe have been in a small group for several years, but nobody knows the real us that's kind of hiding behind that church veneer of, I'm doing great, I'm doing awesome, I'm hanging in there, how are you doing, brother? And so nobody knows the real us us and so we're lonely and and it's really according to the bible it's a thin life because you and i were designed for intimacy we were designed to be known and love and what the bible is saying in this text in particular is that marriage is meant to be the one place where you can certainly let your guard down and be known and loved for who you really are marriage is designed to be a place of intimacy where you can be your real self and you can know, hey, I don't have to fake it here because I know that no matter what you see, you will love me. And again, I said earlier, this is meant to happen in the church. That's another sermon, but there's a certain depth at which this is meant to happen in marriage that will happen nowhere else at the human level. And this is why I think we're so fascinated by marriage because who doesn't want that? 
Like, is there any one of you that are like, I'll take the polish. I don't want to let my hair down and be honest about who I really am. Like, we long for these moments. Like, the best moments in life are when people get a glimpse of who we really are and love the real us. And what the opening pages of the Bible is saying is that is what marriage is designed to be with the type of depth that you'll find nowhere else. It's a place where you are meant to be naked and un ashamed. And this is why I think we're fascinated by it. We all want this. This is to be the place where you can be who you really are with your unique quirks, with your crazy and all. You bring it and you'll be accepted. You'll be loved. And and, and again, I I know where I'm just going to get ahead in the sermon. Some of you are like, but we can't condone sin. I'm not talking about that, but I am saying that marriage is supposed to be the one place um, where, uh, well, I guess I'll get off and say a couple of things. Marriage is meant to be the one place where regardless of what we are doing, um, there's a, I'm in this for you, I'm committed to you, and there's also, um, there's also, I think, uh, while we do speak the truth in love, in marriage, I think we can all stand to learn that we are not the Holy Spirit, and that God can work in our spouse's life. We're not the only ones that have to speak in, but now I'm totally off notes. Um, so here's the picture. I think this is why we love marriage. We want to be naked and unashamed. We want to be able to let our guard down. Opening pages of the Bible saying, hey, you want that? That's what human relationships are supposed to be. So get in a good church, make good friends. But particularly, according to this text, marriage is a place where you will experience that with the type of depth that will give you a depth of intimacy that will blow your mind. You will experience the type of intimacy that you will experience nowhere else at the human level. That's the claim of the opening pages of the Bible. And I think that's why we're fascinated by it. But as I say that, we then need to ask the question, then what happened? Because one of you are feeling me on this. Like, um, if marriage is meant to be this place of intimacy where you come alive as you're known and loved for who you really are without having to put up a false self, um, let's just have some real talk. How many marriages can you name that operate like that? Uh, we were asked this in premarital counseling. We were supposed to think about couples that made us want to get married and what kind of marriages they had. And gosh, we were really thinking about it. Like, how, how many people do you know that experience this type of intimacy in their marriage? And I know we have different stories in this room. So some of you, uh, you maybe know more than others. Some of you, you don't know a single one. But here, here's the point. Um, I think something's happened. I think there's a reason that we fear marriage, that for all it's supposed to be, it is often not what it cracked up to be. And so maybe for you, the question isn't uh, theoretical, like what happened. Maybe for you, the question is, what happened to me? Why isn't my marriage this way? I'd love to be naked and unashamed, but I'll tell you, I ain't naked and I dang sure am not unashamed. What happened? Well, uh, we have eaten from the wrong tree. That's what I would say. Um, you got to think about what we said two weeks ago. That there's two ways to live, that we can eat from the tree of life, um, that trusts God and walks in his design, or we can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to say, God, thanks for making everything, thanks for making marriage, but now I'm going to redefine marriage on my terms. And what we have all done is rather than eat from the tree of life and let God tell us how marriage is meant to operate, we have all eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and redefined, or I would say trying to redefine marriage on our own terms. And and the easy example to talk about that your mind's probably going to right now today is same-sex marriage. And, And I'll be straight with you. That's not what I'm talking about right now. 
Now, I I am going to talk about that for a moment because I know it's the elephant in the room right now. Um, But we need to get on to speaking about other things today. But I will say, I think this is the easy example to talk about where we're redefining marriage on our own terms. Um, And so let me say this about same-sex marriage. Um, As I've talked to gay and lesbian friends, it seems to me that the Church of Jesus Christ is more known for our view of what marriage is not than what marriage is. I don't know if you're tracking with me on the difference on that, where what I would say is we've taken one aspect of where we as humans have distorted God's design. And and let me just say this with as much compassion and clarity as I can. It is a distortion of God's design. Um, What we're seeing in the opening pages of the Bible is that God has designed marriage to be this harmonious, dynamic union of two equal but distinct partners of one man and one woman. And this is not just the teaching of the opening pages of the Bible. It is the teaching of uh, everyone that follows, particularly of our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, I'm not questioning what God says about this. Don't send me that email. I'm not questioning what God says about this. God has been clear about what marriage is in this regard. What I am questioning is the way that we have latched onto this one aspect of marriage about what genders are involved, who gets married, and we've acted as if that's the only thing God cares about. Where people in our world, image bearers that God loves, know what we are against, but they don't know what we're for when it comes to marriage. I mean, try asking some of your non-Christian friends if they say, if you say, what do you think I believe about marriage? I would be shocked if their first response to you is, it's a place of intimacy where you're to be known and loved, naked and unashamed, or if that makes you blush, known and loved. I think the thing that the church is known for is, well, that's not marriage. And again, I'm not questioning what God's saying. I'm questioning our emphasis Like, let's have some real talk here. Um, Because some of you, like, one of you are with me, and I know several of you are are feeling like, why are you coming down so hard on this? And the reason I am is this. Because if you look around this room, there is a missing generation here. There is a missing generation here. And it's complex why there's a missing generation, but I'll tell you as I listen, a big piece of why. My generation has been sold that the church's views on marriage is regressive. And I've been thinking about this week, what have we done to convince them otherwise? We've doubled down on something that they already see as not good. What have we done to show them what marriage is? Uh, To go back to what we said in our vision series, have we condemned the world or have we brought life to the world by pointing to Jesus and what he can bring and what he offers? And I'm I'm not critiquing anyone's intent here. But what I am saying is if the world knows what we are against and not what we are for, um, I I don't know that we can say that we're jiving with Jesus on this one. We might have his doctrine right, but the way that we approach the mission might be all off. And and if I could, Kali, have even more real talk, um, I would just gently say, When this generation looks at us and sees our views of marriage as regressive, and they look in the church and they see our divorce rates are just the same, they see that abuse and misuse are the same in the church, if not higher in the church, 
then I think we all have something to own in the confusion and the madness of our day. Now again, I'm not saying that we should just toss out the Bible. There are churches that will toss out the Bible and and say, you know what, let's just get with the times on this one. That is not going to fill this place and bring life to this valley because you can't bring the life of Jesus to people by um, trying to update Jesus to make him less offensive. Historically, this has been tried, and it always ends with churches dying, which is something we are seeing in the world today among churches trying to do that. I am not encouraging that, but let me also say this. To bring the life of Jesus does not mean that we go around being the morality police, critiquing non-Christians for living as if they're non-Christians. Like, what, what do we expect Is this the first thing we want to talk about? Or do we want to talk to them about Jesus who alone can bring them life? And then if they're digging the Jesus thing and have life in his name, then yeah, let's look at what he says about these other things. I I, I know. I don't know why I keep looking at my notes. I'm so far off right now. Let me just say, here's the point in this. I want you to feel my heart as your pastor. I ain't trying to come down on anybody right now, but I, I think you can probably sense, I feel the angst of the folks that are not here, and I see us having a missing opportunity. Where I think about it this way, what if instead of critiquing the world for acting worldly, what if we took seriously what God is saying about marriage to us? And we let our marriages do the talking. I mean, what if our marriages did look different than the world? And I'm not speaking of every single person in you. I'm catching the eyes of some folks that have beautiful marriages in this room. Um, So I'm not saying that every marriage is a wreck. I'm saying as you look at the church as a whole, the church of Jesus Christ, the divorce rates, the abuse rates, things like that, what if our marriages as a whole did look different? What if our non-Christian friends would have to say to us, we think you're regressive, backwards, and stupid, but we can't deny the beauty of what your doctrine's leading to. We can't deny that you're more alive and more free in your marriages than we are. And we don't want your God, but we want what you have. Wouldn't that be an awesome gospel opportunity? And so that's the, um, church, that's the opportunity we have, I think, in this cultural moment. To, for those of us who have godly marriages, double down and play big with those. And for those of us who feel like, man, my marriage maybe isn't what it should be. um, To, by the grace of God, not feel condemned by where we fall short, but to get up and by his grace pursue afresh what he has called marriage to be. And together to double down on showing the world a better vision for what God has. I mean, that's, that is my heart here. That's the only way I think we will reach this generation. In a day that thinks that we are backwards and stupid for what we believe, the only way I think we will reach them is not through intellectually convincing them otherwise, but showing them what God and his good design is like. And so my heart is that Fair Oaks might be known as a place where if you've got a busted marriage, you'll come here because you'll know that this is a place where you will see marriage going right and you will come here knowing, hey, even as I am broken and don't have my stuff together, I can be naked and know that I'll be loved for who I really am and be um, brought to a place of help and healing by ultimately being introduced to the great healer himself, but also by the great healer's people caring for me right where I'm at. That's my vision for this church. And I was just thinking about this week. I was like, what if, what if this is what we were known for? A church of great marriages and a gracious culture that would accept you no matter how broken you were and introduce you to the only one that gives us any shot of having a great marriage. 
Now, if you're single, you're like, what's my role to play in that? Um, hang on to that question. We're going to get there. Um, but what I want to do is for those who are married, I want to talk about how we get there. Because um, I think it's one thing to say, yes, we want that. I, I, I would like my marriage to uh, preach it just a, a type of sermon that you couldn't argue with. But how do you get there? Well, that's what verse 24 is here to tell us. Um, Verse 24 gives us God's timeless design for marriage. And like I said, um, I think in a lot of ways we've tried to redefine marriage, and that's why our marriages are so busted. But if we would just line ourselves up with his design, by his grace, with his help, I think we would see our marriages begin to preach a type of sermon that wouldn't just be a neutral witness, that would be so positive we'd barely have to open our mouths to say something. And so if you're married, I want you to lean in with me and look at verse 24 and the grace of God. And if you're single, I want you to lean in because I promise this is going to involve all of us when we get to the end. Let's look again at verse 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, I want to pull three things out of this verse for you, uh, mostly for the sake of time. Uh, We could say so much on this, and I'll just point you to our website where we have talked about other places that the New Testament quotes this verse and goes further on this verse. So there's more we can say. I want to pull three things out for us today. I want to make this as practical as possible so that we could maybe all have a next step to take. But let's start with number one. Um, Let's talk about this word hold fast because I love this word hold fast. Um, I love it because our culture talks a lot about marriage like it's a passive, or our culture talks about love like it's a passive thing. Like you're just sitting there one day minding your own business and then poof, you get hit with love. You're like, oh, I guess I'm in love. And then there you are loving your spouse one day, doing your hardest, and then just poof, it falls off of you and you're out of love. And you're like, well, I'm out of love. Sorry, uh, we should get a lawyer. Um, Our our culture talks about love like it's a passive thing, but um, the intimacy that Genesis is telling us about, being naked and unashamed, it requires so much more than a passive thing. So I'm not denying attraction. Maybe something hit you and you saw your spouse like Adam, and you saw your spouse and you were like, dang, not denying that happens. What I am saying is that is always followed up by some or you wouldn't be married. One of the things I love about getting to do premarital counseling is hearing all the crazy stuff that men and women do to attract one another, to draw one another to the point that you would say, I'll spend the rest of my life with you. It's one of my favorite things about premarital counseling. I was thinking about it getting ready for this sermon. Like when I uh, got to know Karen, she friend zoned me real quick. Um, So I'll just say this to everyone out there that's in the friend zone. Like you can get out. It's not easy, but you can get out of the friend zone. Uh, but Karen friend zoned me, and so um, I did crazy things. Like, she was going to move. And, like, look at me. I'm not a strong guy, but I showed up for moving day. I'm going to help lift those mattresses. Almost lost one of her mattresses on the freeway. But I did whatever I could to pursue, to get in the game, to be present. Um, and, and that's what I love about the word hold fast, because this word hold fast, it's used throughout the rest of the Old Testament um, to describe a pursuing army. So, so I love that. It's like um, I, I put some examples in the discussion guide for this week. If you want to look that up and be enriched, um, it's also used to describe things clinging to things. Um, but particularly, it's a, a used to pursue, describe a pursuing army. 
And like, man, when I was friend-zoned, I was a pursuing army, man. I was there. I spent so much time. Um, if I had that opportunity to send a text message, particularly when we were dating, but she was still skeptical, I spent so much time thinking, okay, what Jeff is going to do it right now? Like, what'll make her laugh? What'll make her lean in and keep talking? Um, I put so much effort and attention to, I pursued her like an army. And if you were married, I know you have your own stories of crazy things you have done to get to that point. That's what I love about doing premarital counseling. It'd be great to share with your gospel communities this week. Um, I bring all of that up to say this. Um, We tend to pursue to the point of marriage, and then we get to the wedding day, and what tends to happen, whether we say it or not, is we say, mission accomplished. I got her. I got him. And And what can begin to happen is the pursuit that once marked our marriage or our relationship, now marriage, is gone or begins to fade. And we wonder why it doesn't feel as intimate as when we were dating. We we wonder, where did the naked and unashamed go? Where did this person that I was dating go? Well, the intimate, or excuse me, the pursuit faded. And according to this text, here's point number one. Marriage involves active pursuit. It involves an active pursuit. And the second that the pursuit gives way, you should not be surprised if the intimacy gives way. Because to not continue to pursue is to say, God, you don't know what you're talking about with marriage. I know better. I did all of my pursuit. I I cashed it all in and I'm done. And, And I know none of you would say it that, I pray none of you would say it that way. But I want to have some real talk with you. As I was preparing the sermon, this is where the Holy Spirit's convicting me in my own marriage. And, and, and I say that because um, I don't ever want to stand up here with my cape blowing in the wind and be like, come on, guys, let's go. Be like me. I want to stand up here and hold up the text and say, I think God has more for us than this. And I know firsthand he has more for us than this. And I know Jesus died to bring us more than this. So let's get up and pursue together. So if you are like me and you are feeling convicted by that point, that maybe the reason that we're lacking some of the intimacy that I long for, maybe, it, maybe I own something in this, probably a lot more than you think. Maybe I've missed this point of God's design, that marriage is meant to be an active pursuit. And what I would say to you, if you're like me on that, is there's an opportunity for you to get up in the grace of God and pursue this afresh. Because marriage is... It involves active pursuit. It involves holding fast to your spouse. And, and, and that'll leave me. I'll just, I'll just jump to the next one. I don't have a good transition. Point number two. Let's do that. Um, it's not just an active pursuit. Number two, marriage involves ongoing faithfulness. It involves ongoing faithfulness. We said um, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He will hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. Here's what, um, here's where our culture thinks, well, our culture thinks that's stupid on many regards, but here's one that's coming down the line. And unless you're dialed into the conversation, this is going to shock you. Um, uh, Polyamory. You may not have heard this term, but it's a new hip word for polygamy. It's just more egalitarian in that women can do it too. 
So great job. We made some progress in treating men and women as equal, but it's an old stupid idea that's being recycled. Here's the idea that humans aren't designed for monogamy like the Bible teaches. Humans are designed to just have as much intimate connection on the deepest sexual, relational, marital levels. They're talking marriage on this. That we should be able to be married to several different people, and who are you to say otherwise? And so... um, So the conversation in our culture is becoming this. It's not going to stay on which gender gets married. It's going to be how many people get married. And this is why I want to emphasize to you this morning the number one. One man, one woman becoming one flesh. If that's two men and one woman, if that's two women and one man, that's too many numbers. That's not how it works. God designed this thing for two people to come together and to be joined as one. And and our culture is going to say monogamy, that's so backwards, you are so regressive. But here's what the Bible says. Monogamy is not regressive, it's what makes this intimacy possible. Because here's the point, you are not a god. You and I, we are not infinite. We can't give of ourselves to all people like God can. We are finite beings, and what God has said about us, our creator, is you've got enough in you to give yourself to one person for one lifetime. And so monogamy, it's not a bug in the system. It is what makes this whole intimate thing beautiful and possible. So don't don't you let people, when they start saying, you're backwards for believing in monogamy, just know they sound silly. It's an old idea rehash. Most bad ideas are just an old idea rehash. It's going to come, it's going to go. And we need to stand on the word of God and know what God says about this. He wants deeper intimacy for us than that junior varsity thin level that wants to give a little bit of us to everyone and our whole self to no one. And so marriage requires ongoing faithfulness. Now, if you're like, what does that have to do with faithfulness? Um, Here's what I would say, because I know some of you are like, that's crazy. If my kid came home and said, I want to get married to multiple people, we, like, I don't know what I would do. But here's what I'll say. Here's where you and I can see this in our lives today. I think this has been an issue in the church as long as marriage has been a thing, uh, though it may look differently. If you would look at um, polyamory and say, that's crazy. If you would look at King Solomon in the Bible, like I do, and I'm like, Bro, that guy had like 600 and something, way too many wives. You might not have a harem like King Solomon did, but you might have a digital harem. Are you tracking with me on that one? Um, you might not physically be giving yourself to a physical affair with another person, but you might emotionally be giving your soul away in such a way that, bravo, you haven't done it on the outside with your body, but inside the who you really are has. And when you get to the time of Jesus, he's like, yeah, bravo on, um, you know, not committing adultery, but the lust in your heart. Yeah, same root, same problem. So we need to talk about it. And, and so here's what I would say. If, if you got the, the digital harem, if you are um, emotionally involved with someone outside of your spouse, what I would say is you shouldn't be shocked when the intimacy that you long for is gone or fading. Because what God has said is we need to give ourselves to each other deeply and exclusively. And where we say, I know you say that, but I'm going to do my own thing, what's going to happen is the intimacy that God designed will fade and we shouldn't be surprised because marriage requires ongoing faithfulness to one spouse okay um this gets us to our final point um and that is 
uh, the two shall become one flesh. Now, I know we were just talking about the number, but let's talk about the term one flesh. That right there um, is covenant language. Um, now, you might not be familiar with the term covenant. We tend to use the language of contract, but those two things are very different, and I want to explain this, because our third point is that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Let me, let me explain the difference to you this way. In a contract, two parties make an agreement. If one party does something... Um, like let's say you have a cell phone plan and you are promised unlimited data and, and, and you go online because you're bored during the sermon and you're like, man, how's the game going? And your data is out. They breach the contract. And so you get to say, hey, our contract is null and void. You promised you would provide me these services. You did not. I want out of the contract. This is the world in which we live. We are used to contracts, but the Bible doesn't speak so much of contracts as it talks about covenants, especially when it comes to relationship. And in a covenant, what's most important is not um, the individual and your rights about what you get to do. What's most important is the relationship. And when one party doesn't true hold true to a covenant. In a covenant, you don't get to break that and make that null and void. In a covenant, you say, this is now my problem that you have not held up your side of that. Because here's the idea of one flesh. What one flesh is saying is there's not two parties anymore where we are kind of like providing goods and services, which is how our world views marriage today. The marriage is about my happiness, and the second you don't serve my happiness, I'm out. What the Bible says is marriage is a covenant where we become one flesh. What that means is I'm not in this for what you can provide me. You and me, we are one. And so your good is my good. And so maybe you're struggling right now and look a bit crazy, but that doesn't mean I'm going to judge you. That means that I'm struggling right now and I'm looking a bit crazy because we are one. We are one flesh. That's the difference between a contract and a covenant. And again, what I will say is this is the only way true intimacy is possible. It's the only way true intimacy is possible because here's the thing, spoiler alert, if you haven't figured this out, you married a sinner. You married a sinner. And if, if you're thinking about your spouse right now, like, oh man, I knew it. What I would say to your spouse if they're here um, is that they married a sinner too. And possibly the way you just thought about them proves my point. You married a sinner. And so here's what that means is in marriage is we are naked and expose ourselves to one another, you will inevitably sin against each other. This is what it means to be a sinner, that we are broken, that we are not what we are created to be. And the only way you can hang in there long enough to experience the depth of intimacy, of naked and unashamed, is with the bond of a covenant that says, I'll see you're crazy and not go anywhere. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And without that type of commitment, of grace, commitment to figuring out, you'll never be able to experience it. Now, now I, I have to say this while we're on this. This doesn't mean that divorce is never appropriate in any case. There are cases of egregious sin that so far outweigh what God designed that that could be a means of protecting someone in a truly vulnerable situation. And what I'll just say for time is we preached a whole sermon on this over the summer in our Mark series that I would point you to. I'm not encouraging anyone in this room to stay in a dangerous situation. And I'm not saying if you've been divorced that God loves you less because we believe in a gracious God that redeems all things. What I'm saying is his design is for marriage to be a covenant, not a contract. And where we do differently, we undercut our shot at our own joy. We do it at the sake of our own flourishing and our own happiness. 
that marriage is meant to be a place where we can look at one another and say, no matter how you sin against me today, I'm for you, I love you, I'm in this, we'll figure it out together. And, and, and you might hear that and go, that makes a great sermon, but who actually lives that way? Like, this sounds really great in theory until you start thinking about your life and the stuff you're going through. When you lay this on the ground of your life, you might say to me, or you might think of this on the way home, or you might be thinking it now, who actually lives that way? And, and here's my answer. Jesus. Jesus. I'm being serious because by the time you get to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, we read it at the top of service, we'll quote this verse and say this is a profound thing going on here. And I'm telling you it's more profound than you know. It ultimately is a shadow that points to Christ and his love for his people, the church. And so here's what I'm aware of every time I preach on marriage. There is not a perfect spouse in this room, myself included. Um, But there's Jesus. And he actually did live this way. Like, I I want you to think about this. For as much as God has given us this good gift in marriage, what we have done is said, thanks God, we think we know better, consciously or unconsciously. It's what we do when we fall short in all of these ways. We've eaten from the wrong tree. And God's response to that is not to take marriage away from us. It's to send his beloved son to show us the way. And in the person and work of Jesus, we see what it looks like to hold fast to someone, to pursue in love and grace in a way that's appropriate and not like a stalker. We see a way to pursue in a way that says, you are valuable to me, not because of what you can provide to me, but because of who you are. In the person and work and ministry and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see what it looks like to be faithful, even when the person we're loving gives us every reason not to be. We see what it looks like to say, even though you've done this for the enting time to me, I'm not going anywhere. When Jesus goes to the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In the person and work of Jesus, we see what it's like to love based on a covenant, not a contract. This is why we're grateful that God doesn't say, if you can be this righteous, then I'll love you. We should be grateful that God says, I know you can't be righteous, and I'm going to bind myself to you with my own blood and commit myself that if you will trust in me, if you want relationship with me, I will do everything necessary to pay your debt, to bring you back to a place where everything flourishes, and love you no matter what. This is the love that we see in Jesus. He's the only spouse that has ever perfectly loved with pursuing, never giving up, always and forever love. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that this verse is ultimately about Christ and the church, he's saying to you and I as broken humans, hey, you guys have got no shot at this on your own. But Jesus has come and he has done this. And he has died for all the ways that you have failed He has died for all the ways that you will fail this week and will fail in the future. He has wiped away that. And so no more shame in God's presence. That sin is removed. You don't get to feel guilty about what Christ has paid for. Your sin's not bigger than the cross of Christ. The gospel announces that the debt has been paid, that Jesus is raised from the dead, that new creation is on the march, and he sends his spirit in us to empower us to walk in his ways. As we say, Jesus, I want to live life under your good rule. Would you line me back up? I know I've drifted. Would by the power of your Holy Spirit, you bring me back under your design? this week. That's what the gospel is. 
That's what Jesus came to do. He came to make that possible. And so, in light of that, here is the invitation of Jesus in this text. Um, If you are married, by the grace of God, motivated by what Christ has done for you and me and freed up from all of our sin and shame, by the grace of God, cultivate the gift of your marriage. I I know you might walk in here and be like, oh, I'm so busted, I failed on all three points. Usually I at least do well on one of the points. I'm 0 for 3 today. But what this text is saying is the cross of Jesus Christ means you can't can't feel shame today. He, He came to take that sin and that shame away so that he could bring you a new power and a new life to live into his good design. And so if you believe the gospel, that means that no matter how busted your marriage is, You, as you by the grace of God begin to cultivate your marriage and give effort and work towards lining yourself up by his grace with his spirit under his design, you can experience a type of intimacy in your marriage that you will find nowhere else. And you might say, you don't know my marriage. I've counseled worse than your marriage and I know it and I've seen it. And I've seen him do it out there and I've seen him do it in my marriage. So by the grace of God, I would encourage you to cultivate your marriage. Do not give yourself over to what you don't have today. By faith, press in. Now, I would say this might start with checking in with your spouse and saying, how are we doing, and asking that uncomfortable question. Um, Ask the dangerous question. How are we doing? And by the grace of God, cultivate your marriage under his good design, knowing you will fail at it this week. But he is gracious and will work through the imperfect efforts to recreate you. And and let me say this, if you're single, I told you we would get back to you. My hope is that this text, that this truth would encourage you to cultivate a breadth of intimacy through real relationships in this church and in your broader community that are centered on Jesus. To say, hey... If this text is ultimately about Jesus and his people, well, I'm a part of the people, so that means I'm included in this text. And so my hope is that you would take that seriously and that you would follow the New Testament call to cultivate a breadth of community here. One of the best pieces of advice I ever heard is that married couples have a chance to do in breadth, depth, what you have a chance to do in breadth. And so lean in on that this week. And, And here's what I... I know that some of you have had a wonderful marriage and that person's not here anymore. And and, and you might be thinking like this sermon just reminds you of everything that you miss. And and what I want to say to you is in a world that is proclaiming that you're not fully human unless you're married, you as a single have an opportunity to say, Marriage is a good gift, but it is but a shadow of Christ and his love for me. And you have an opportunity to, like our Lord Jesus Christ, show you don't have to be married to be human. That marriage is a shadow of the greater gift of God and his love for us. And so as you cultivate that depth of community and refuse to allow yourself to be identified by your marital status, you can follow in the way of Jesus and so many of the authors of the New Testament and so many courageous Christians who have gone before us to say to our world, you don't have to be married to be human, so stop saying we don't love you because we're saying this. We deeply love you and Christ has so much life for you and you have an opportunity to share it.
got a beautiful opportunity. And so my prayer is you wouldn't feel uh, like you're missing out on something today. That you would lean into that. And that together, married and single, busted marriage, healthy marriage, wherever we are, are this morning. My hope is that together we might let our light shine so that the darkness of this world cannot overcome it and the love of Jesus Christ might shine the more fully through us, be our life single, be more married, whatever our station in life, may the love of Christ shine through us by the way we live into this text this week. So I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to ask God to do it because I don't know if you know it, we're going to need his help. So let me pray for us and then we'll get to responding to this message. Father, I... I thank you that you're so creative. I thank you that you thought up marriage. Um, I thank you that you, you not only give us what we need, but you're extravagant. You give us good gifts. You didn't have to make marriage so beautiful. You could have made it just transactional. You could have just made it, you have children and that works, but you, you made a, a level of depth and joy that leads to song and singing in the scriptures. And so I want to thank you for being a good God who loves to give good gifts to your children. Um, I want to ask right now that because you're a good God who loves us, I want to ask that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to comfort each and every heart in here. Um, where our hearts might be drawn to the areas that we fall short, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to lift high the work of your son, Jesus. That we might um, not give ourselves over to condemnation, but that wherever we might fall short, that might turn into a prayer of repentance to you and gratefulness for the fact that you love us even where we fall short. Would you let us be naked and unashamed in your presence this morning because of the work of your son, Jesus, and in so doing, empower us to walk in the type of intimacy you have wired us for. Help us. In your beautiful name I ask. Amen.